Welcome to the Dr. Pete Goldman Show. I'm super psyched today to have not only an incredible guest, as you'll see, but also a good friend of mine, Guy Mesger. Guy Mesger, welcome. I appreciate it. I appreciate being uh, being part of this with you. Cool. Thank you. All right. So I have a lot of cool things to ask you and discuss with you. I know you've been interviewed hundreds of times, maybe even thousands. I don't know. But um, I think we'll do some unique stuff today together. Um, so let me just start by asking you, you know, um, obviously when someone becomes a fighter, there's a, there's a certain point in their life when they decide they're going to be a professional fighter. I, I would think some people when they're five years old, you know, they see Rocky one and they're like, I'm going to do that. And then some people doesn't even occur to them. All of a sudden they're 20 years old and they decide to be a fighter. When, when did you figure out or decide, or when did it come to you? Man, I think I'm going to do this for a living. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll be uh, completely honest with you <laughs> in the fact that, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't in my game plan as, um, you know, for my life, to be honest. Um, I just managed to screw just about everything up in my life at the at where I was going at the time that professional fighting actually looked like a good thing. <laughs> so you got to be you got to be in a pretty pretty bad place when you think that you know what i probably should become a professional fighter when you, um, when you when you say that that you you know talk about screwing things up i mean are are you being a little hard on yourself and or making a slight joke or do you or do you think it was that bad no it was that bad i mean i i, I try to make uh i try to make it fun and funny uh because um you know to be honest it was a it was a pathetic thing and 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 you know, and I use it a lot when I, you know, when I when I lecture and do stuff like that because I do a lot of a lot of talking and, you know, just basically let people know that that uh, you know life throws you a bunch of curves curveballs and sometimes you know you get hit with a pitch and you still got to deal with deal with what's going on and and make the best of it and really you know my story how I became a pro fighter was you know I, I was a successful amateur athlete you know I was a, a, a you know, a wrestler. I was a high school American. I was a three-time state champion. I was uh, wrestled on a junior national team, a schoolboy team. Let me, uh, let me just come in for a sec before you go into that. I know you well. I've known you for a long time. And, uh -huh. you know, you're a very smart guy. You have a high IQ. You have a lot of also intellectual interests. So not only do you have a good foundation of being smart, but intellectual topics interest you. So my my what I'm wondering is, when you were in junior high and high school and, you know, you're, you know, all American and this and wrestling and learning how to box. Did you still like to kind of go home and study because you, you found when you were like in 10th grade and 11th grade and 12th grade, did you find those topics interesting or you were just so wrapped up in the sports that you hadn't developed that part of you yet? That was more on the intellectual side. No, I, I you know, my, my, my problem, you know, to, to be honest, no, I, I, I was, I've always been intrigued, uh, especially, uh, you know, especially kind of dealing with esoterical and spiritual kind of things. I, I was very explorative as, as a young man. I, I asked a million questions and, and I was always super inquisitive. My, my, my main issue is, well, a couple of things is one is that, uh, I, I wasn't a good student, uh, as a classically good student because, uh, school, to be honest, was basically easy, and I and I and I'll be honest, I didn't take any AP classes or anything like that. I did that intentionally, 
because, uh, you know, um, I also worked a great deal. I, I grew up in a poor family. And so, you know, to be honest, I, you know, I had a job like, you know, from about age 13 on. And, um, so, you know, I was always interested. My, my main problem was, is that I am a bright guy and I, I had a good memory. And so I never learned how to study. I didn't have to. I, I, I remember, uh, my, my senior year in high school, they, they changed some laws in Texas that, well, first of all, you actually had to have a, you had a minimum of times you had to show up for class. Before they didn't have that, so I never showed up. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I, I still managed to grad, graduate in the top 25% of my class without ever really showing up for school. But my senior year, they changed the laws. And so I actually had to show up for class, which was a drag. And on top of it, though, you know, the big thing was is that you had to pass certain classes or core classes. You actually had to have a passing grade in that you didn't necessarily have to have in the old days as long as your total GPA was passing. And one of them was English. And uh, so I was, uh, you know, I, I had a, you know, I got a girlfriend near the, near the end of my senior year and she's like all freaking out because we were supposed to go out, but she had to study for her English test. And, and, uh, and I said, well, let me have, come over and help you study. And literally what I did is I took her, her study guide and I filled out about 75% of it from my memory and the other 25, I knew exactly where to find it in the book. And, you know, the problem with that is, is that you can't do that in college. You know, when you go to college, you actually, first of all, have to show up the classes, which was something still entirely new to me. <laughs> and, uh, and you, and, and there's no way you can memorize everything the same way that you did by just, you know, reading and paying attention. You, you actually have to study. You actually sit down and, 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 you know, to be successful in college is a lot like being successful in the fight, uh, fight business, man. You got to sit down. You got to put a plan together. You got to exercise that plan. You got to make adjustments when stuff comes. And I just was not prepared for it. So, you know, so I went to college. Were, yeah, let me ask you a question. When you, let me ask you a question on that note. When you were, you know, listen, because who knows? Let's say you grew up in a wealthy family in like Boston or New York. You know, you might have you might have went to Harvard undergrad and then, you know, Harvard for a Ph.D. Because that, that's your uh, capacity. Who knows? But my question is, when you were 15, 16, 17, were you surrounded by any people that, gave you access to explore higher intellectual and academic things or you just you know your mom and your brothers and your girlfriend and your friends they weren't really into that you didn't really you weren't really exposed to to places that you could explore that aspect of yourself or or was there some possibility yeah there you know there very much was in fact um you've never had the opportunity to meet my brothers but if you met my brothers you you would uh you know, you, you would you would see you know some some amazing human beings. I mean, some incredible human beings, unbelievably smart. Here, here's the funny part: my family, uh, my mother uh, had an invitation to join Mensa. My older brother did join Mensa, <laughs> and my two younger brothers had invitations to join Mensa. Well, that I didn't get it. the invitation. It. It's, it's in it's in your genetics. I get it. Okay, yeah. so but 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 with that said, you have these. You, well, you had and you still have these Mensa genetics. But nonetheless, you were a spectacular athlete, so you were doing these things. So when you were a wrestler and you were a good wrestler, you know, like nowadays, because we already said that you didn't know you were going to be a pro fighter at that point. Nowadays, if someone is a young person and they're like, wait, I better get well-rounded. I'm going to do wrestling, jujitsu, boxing, kickboxing, whatever their thing is. But you weren't, you weren't on that path. So what I'm wondering is, 
when you were a really great wrestler, did you did it kind of occur to you, yeah, I'm going to do the stand-up too because I want to really be well-rounded? Or you just kind of liked it. You're like, oh, I'm a great wrestler. I want to learn some stand-up because that seems yeah. really fun. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, you know, because, you know, I, I was also from a poor family, right? Like, I, you know, I had self-esteem issues. We, we, we grew up in a place called Plano, which was uh, back in the 80s was all new money. And, and you know, new money people love showing off that they have money and and uh you know and, and i didn't have it it was embarrassing i i didn't have really nice clothing i didn't have a nice car i drove a motorcycle and so i had a lot of self-esteem issues you know and and so uh you know so is it where i you know as an athlete i shined you know what i mean i you know i i i was a good athlete so that that's where i got my self-esteem and then you know and and, and i i had a weird skill set you know I, i'm i'm really good at at, at fighting naturally i mean and even though i don't like hurting people which is kind of a weird paradox i i, I never have gotten pleasure out of you know uh hurting other 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 human beings and um but i'm kind of good at it so it's kind of a weird paradox and i've always been good at it and so you know when you know i always love team sports but the problem with team sports is that like with football i need 10 other guys to win the game you know, baseball, you know, I had to have eight other guys who win the game, you know what I mean? And so with, 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 with wrestling, uh, and then with karate, and of course I was always, you know, karate, everyone, you know, back in the 80s, we were fascinated. Everyone was a big Chuck Norris fan. I remember watching the movie Octagon and said, I want to get involved in karate and, and, uh, you know, and, and, but, and I excelled in it and, and it, and it gave me a, a medium in which, you know, for my self-esteem. And, um, that, you know, and that, that's really what kind of outweighed a lot of my intellectual things. I enjoy studying stuff intellectually, but I got my self-esteem as an athlete, not, not, not as an egghead. Right. And so, you know, so that's kind of where I, I kind of leaned, uh, towards. And I was like, I said, always fascinated, uh, you know, with it. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and to be honest, I came from an abusive family, uh, abusive father. So, you know, learning to fight was part of, uh, you know, it was part of my self-defense and having to deal you with him. Me, you told me a story once, which you might have forgot that you told me, but I thought it was very significant. I actually even thought about it since you told it to me. Maybe you could maybe you could mention it that when you were I think you were seven or something, you were like at the bus stop and someone kind of picked on you. And then your big brother was like, no, we're going out tomorrow. You're fighting him. And then eventually. Oh, yeah. Week. I think that's a pretty cool story, if you wouldn't mind explaining that. Yeah. OK, so I, I was actually it was kindergarten. And, um, and I was four years old and I still remember this. I mean, like this is like, uh, you know, and for some reason, my dad thought it was a good idea to start being kindergarten at four years old when everybody else was five and six, you know? And so, uh, and, and you understand the times, you know, you know, we're talking 1972, you know what I mean? We're talking in the middle of a bunch of civil rights issues and all kinds of stuff. And we had a thing called forced busing, which was a good idea. What it, the idea of it was to bring kids from, various groups you know from inner cities and suburbs everything and put them in one school so they get the you know get to uh learn to figure out how to get along well the idea was great but the actual practice though wasn't so great and uh you know you're you're a few years younger than me but you probably were still no, i'm actually i'm actually four months older than you FYI. oh are you i thought you, you just look younger than me <laughs> well then you know i mean you grew up in new york you know all, all about force busing it was a big deal in new york in fact you know there was a lot of problems with it in new york and so you know so so i was in stuck in this deal and, and so literally this kid that was six years old you know was going to beat me up 
And uh, I was like, you know, I lived like right by the right by the school. And he was being he was being bussed in from uh, you know, from downtown Connecticut. And so it was like or downtown Stanford. And so I was like, I ran home. And my brother was there, older brother. And I told him what was happening. He's like, what? He goes, we don't do that. You're going to have that problem. Because my older brother got picked on a lot, too, because he was small, too. And I, I was like, what? And he literally dragged me back up to the school. Because, again, like I said, we literally live right next to the school. And called this kid out of the, uh, out of the bus line. And we fought, <laughs> you know. And then, you know, and I didn't do so well, you know, because I was scared out of my mind. And then so the next day I walk home, but that, you know, it was the end of it. The next day I was home. My older brother was there on, waiting on me on the rock wall and went back up, said, we're going to do this again. And we did it again. And we did it again. And we did it again until the kid finally said, I don't want any more trouble. <laughs> you know, it was like, I'm done. And then, and then my older brother said, he goes, now you're never going to have a problem. Because I, I got better and better at it. You know, I mean, each, each fight I, I did better and I really put on him the last time. And so my brother said, you don't have to worry about it anymore. He goes, and nobody in the school is going to mess with you because they, they, they know you're going to, you're going to take it to the extreme. That's, and, that's, a great, uh, that's a great story, which obviously I remembered. I'm glad you told it again. Yeah. Um, let's fast forward quite a bit now. So now, you know, you have this skill set. You're a good wrestler. You're a champion kickboxer, et cetera, et cetera. You, you were good at judo also. So, you, you know, you have quite a, quite a lot in your, uh, in your knowledge base of fighting, um, how did you even hear about the UFC? Now you didn't fight in UFC one, but you fought in some very early UFCs. How did how did it even come to your attention that there's this? Well, I guess I'll call it an organization that's having close to no rules fighting. How did that? How did that um, catch your awareness? Well, uh, okay, so actually, believe it or not, after UFC one. The only rules were no eye gouging and no groin hits the groin, and then uh, a bunch of when a bunch of martial artists said, "Well, that's not really real." So to be honest, they took all the rules out. They didn't put rules back in until after UFC four, where they started putting time limits. But they didn't even do they didn't do uh, they didn't do any uh, 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 they didn't have uh, you know at the end of those fights back then it was a draw if you. You know, at the end of the time limits, and they, then they added, uh, then, then they added the, uh, uh, you know, the, the scorekeeping, and then in UFC six, was it no? It was either five or six. Uh, it was a guy actually that I was supposed to fight, but they 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 changed opponents on us. It was this kung fu guy, and you know, and you know, and the problem with the no rules was, or, or or why no one really got killed in the no rules was that. The guys who were winning were, 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 were sport athletes, you know, were athletes like wrestlers and kickboxers, and they, they had a sense of respect, right? You know, and so they wouldn't, you know, they, they really wouldn't take it too far. It was always the, the crazy, you know, killer kung fu guys and the ninjas and all those idiots that couldn't really fight that always that did the biting and did the stuff. Well, this one kung fu guy was wrestling, was fighting a professional wrestler, and uh, he headbutted the guy, cut him. And then he reached up inside the cut and ripped it open. And then so then they realized UFC had to they had to uh, uh, add rules after what that. Number, what what number UFC was it when you fought in your first fight against Jason? I think I'm pronouncing that. That was Aaron, UFC Aaron. four. Okay, UFC yeah, four. That, okay. That, 
So to answer that question, though, how, how I know. So I saw UFC 1 like everyone else, right? I thought it was just some pro wrestling gimmick, you know what I mean? And uh, and and then we watched Gerard Godot knock the, the, the sumo's teeth out. And, and I was watching with a bunch of guys, uh, you know, and a bunch of guys that actually uh, fought amateurly and professionally as boxers and kickboxers. And uh, we were sitting there, and literally you could hear a pen drop. Everyone's talking smack. And, oh, there's a bull. And then we're like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is for real. <laughs> and literally you could see his teeth go flying out and you're like, holy crap. So I was like, I, you know, I, and I saw the flaw in most of those, most of those athletes, most of those athletes didn't have a good diversity. Most of them, if they could strike, they couldn't wrestle. If they could wrestle, they couldn't strike. Right. And, but I can do both. You know I mean? At the time I was number one rated heavyweight kickboxer and uh, I was world full contact karate champion and I was a former college wrestler. So, you know, I was like, and, and judo player. And so I was like, you know, oh, I could win this thing. And so, uh, you know, so what happened? So a guy named Buddy Albin, he became the site promoter for the UFC. And Buddy Albin promoted fights. I fought on Buddy Albin's cards, fight cards uh, in Oklahoma and Kansas City. Uh, where else? Uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, Florida. He, he promoted cards there. And, uh, and in Texas, we we I promoted most of my own fights, uh, or actually my, my girlfriend, my friend did. But um, but you know I got to know it. And so as a site promoter for the UFC, part of his contract was he was allowed to put two fighters in into the uh, deal. But one had to be kind of an alternate position, and the other one could enter the tournament. Well, you know he asked me and Anthony Macias if we if we wanted to do this, and we we're like, of course, yeah. And then so we actually flipped the coin. He won. Anthony won. So he decided to fight in the tournament, and I had the, the, the kind of like the weird challenge match thing that was just before the finals in UFC four. So that's how it that's how it it, it came about. Here's a little here's a little trivia for you that you you probably don't know. I don't know if you find it interesting, but when Gerard Gordeau was listed at, as his style in UFC one, it said savat, which is of course French kickboxing. Yeah. Well, here's a little trivia that you may not know. So Gerard Gerard Gordeau is a Kyokushin fighter. And that was, yeah. of course, in 1993. In 1991, I fought in the European Kyokushin Championships in Holland. And Gerard Gordeau actually was my host. So he actually, I stayed basically with him for a week. And I went there, I fought. And then even after I fought, I stayed a few days. And Gerard Gordeau was my host in Amsterdam, which was really fun. But anyway, so he was under um, my branch of Kyokushin, so to speak, at the time. And when the UFC asked him to fight, he called my teacher, my Kyokushin teacher, who was essentially, he was under, even though I was in New York City. And he said, look, I'm going to fight in this thing. Uh, you know, I'm going to use the, I'm going to use the karate school's name because that's what I am. And my teacher said, well, I don't really know much about this thing, but in case, in case you don't win, because we're only interested in first place, yeah. just use something else. So Gerard said, well, I actually knocked out the Savat champ last year, so... I'm not really a Savat fighter, but I did knock out the Savat world champ. So I'm currently the Savat heavyweight champ. I'll just use Savat. So it's a little trivia. Not yeah. everyone knows, but I knew that because um, I was kind of on the inside of that. So when you knew you were fighting Jason, well, first of all, A, I mean, it wasn't like you were studying tape on him, but did yeah. anyone say to you, hey, guy, your opponent is this guy, you know, Jason, here's what he does? Or were you were you just kind yeah. of concentrating on what you were going to do to him? Or how well, did that go well, yeah, I mean, you know, okay, so the thing is, you got to remember, the UFC back then really wasn't a sport. 
It was a spectacle. All right. And they wanted to create spectacle. I mean, the whole reason that they had a cage, okay, even though it seems it worked out to be a really good, uh, you know, environment to, uh, you know, to compete in the original reason they wanted the cage was, was for just the effect. The guy who designed that stuff, he, he, he'd been the director for the Conan, uh, movies you know so he was actually the cage really wasn't for safety even though it turned out to be a uh, point it really was for the effect of two guys getting in there and i don't know if you guys uh, ever seen the old movie hard times with charles bronson but one of the big fight scenes in there two of the big fight scenes in there is him fighting in like uh, a, a caged in area right and so that was that's really what they were going for and so you know so it was uh you know it it you know, it, 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 and so again, they were creating that spectacle. And so really also the two is, let's face it, you know, originally this thing was just a, uh, uh, a marketing ploy for, you know, Gracie Jiu Jitsu. Right. And, and so, you know, so they, uh, it was more style against style, you know, and really what they wanted and the reason that they, the reason that they, they really wanted me to fight me and Anthony fight was that we were both, Anthony was a WKA world kickboxing champion. I was the number one ranked kickboxing uh, uh, kickboxer and I was United States kickboxing champion. And so they really wanted kickboxers who had some credibility, who, you know, didn't, you know, who looked like athletes. So they had a few kickboxers in there that, you know, were kind of not, not in great shape to be, to be nice. And, um, and so they, they wanted to go up against, uh, you know, they, they wanted, they wanted to go against a jujitsu guy. So they were going to, my fight was a highlight fight anyways. It was going to be a fight that almost everybody was going to see because it was a fight just before the finals. All right. Really, it was a fight just to give the break to the guys in the finals, right, to give them a chance to rest. And they wanted to, like, which is better, jiu-jitsu or kickbox, right? And, uh, you know, and so they didn't ask me about anything else, so I didn't give them any other information. When you, when you, when you got in the cage with Jason and you kind of locked up with him for those first 30 seconds – yeah. Were you, thinking, were you thinking like, oh, this guy's kind of strong or kind of good? Or were you thinking like, no, 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 this is just a matter of time until I finish this? Yeah, I, I wasn't worried about it. I, I, you know, it's kind of hard to recall everything that was in my head. But, you know, you know, once I'm in there, I'm not going to kid you. I didn't sleep good going into this thing, man. I mean, you know, I was like, I don't know how some of these guys, you know, were so confident to get in there. Because I, I had over 60 pro fights walking in there, tons of freaking amateur fights. Been wrestling since I was eight years old, judo, like spending, I had thousands of bouts, right? And when I agreed to do this, man, I didn't sleep probably two or three hours at, in a row. And at, at any time, I was like, holy crap, man, this, what did I get myself into? And, you know, so I was, I, you know, listen, I ain't a kid, I was nervous, you know what I mean? So I don't know how some of those guys, they either were very good at, you know, covering up how nervous they were, or, or they were so delusional uh, that uh, they really thought they were going to win. And, 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 and Jason, I think, was a little bit uh, on the delusional side, um, you know, not to be mean or anything, um, you know, especially since I, I, I found out he passed away. I think, but, you know, he he was extremely confident that he was going to run through me. You know what I mean? And, I, and and all I could think of is, you know, this guy came out with a bullshit 32 and 0 bare knuckle. I was like, bullshit. You know, that was bullshit. You know, and I have legitimate, you know, recorded fights. I'm like, I, I really like. You know, I was like, man, I just don't see myself. I, I literally didn't see myself losing to him, you know, and, uh, you know, and it was pretty much a dominating. How fight. did you, uh, how did you make your way into the lion's den? I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, oh. 
as far as I know, you correct me if I'm wrong, when you showed up to fight Jason, you didn't even know, I mean, you knew, you might have known who Ken Shamrock was because you might have watched him in the UFC, but you were not friends with him. You didn't, you were not affiliated. Oh, no, actually, actually, I had become, uh, I'd actually trained with them for, for UFC 4. Okay. So, 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 okay, so, you know, me, I, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm a bright enough guy to realize that I needed to get outside of my, uh, outside of what I'm doing now, because, yeah, I'm, I'm accustomed to box. I mean, I was accustomed to boxing, accustomed to kickboxing. I hadn't done any real uh, uh, wrestling, but I, I've been doing judo, you know. And so I needed to get in there with somebody who had, you know, experience. And so, uh, and I also wanted to get a feel. When they first asked me to fight in this thing, I had to get kind of a feel of it. So I said, so they flew me out to USC3, and uh, which was in uh, uh, North Carolina in Charlotte. and. And basically to watch, be a guest and watch. And then I was going to make my assessment of, of the deal and decide if I was going to fight or not. And that's when I met Ken and I met Bob and I met Frank and, um, and, you know, basically said, you know, would you guys be interested in, or would you be up, for, allow me to come out there and train with you guys some? Cause I said, I don't, I've never prepared for anything quite like this. I said, I've never had a, a contest that had no time limit, no, no safety gear, no nothing. Everyone kept saying it's like a street fight. It's not like a street fight, guys. It's nothing like, well, outside of the, the damage you do each other, you know, it's not a street fight, right? It's, you know, street fights generally are not between two skilled fighters in a 30 foot by cage, you know, 30 by 30 foot cage. Okay. That's usually not how most street fights go. And so, you know, so I, you know, uh, Bob, you know, Bob was real attentive to it. And Bob was like, yeah, Ken, you know, Ken was, you know, in the middle of, you know, the, the whole thing was a bit disappointing for him. So he was real nice to me and everything, but I could tell he was distracted. Frank was uh, pretty cool. And they saw us like, all right, I, I got a good feeling with these guys. So I basically called him up and said, Hey, listen, I'm going to fight this thing in a couple of weeks. Can I come out and train with you? And they said, yes. So I went out there and Ken said, you know, we, uh, we normally don't do this, but you know, I mean, if you became part of the team or something like that, and I was like, how do I come part of the team? And he goes, you know, it's just tryout. He goes, but I'll be honest, man, most guys don't pass it. Now, you're an old school black belt from old school black belt stuff like this. I'm an old school black belt from old school black belt. It's like going, there's nothing. They're going to throw at me that hadn't already been done to me, you know, on these black belt tests. I was like, bring it. You know what I mean? And uh, so I thought maybe I'd do it. So Ken was like, all right, go get your gear on. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I thought we'd at least have a day to prep. But so – I got there that that afternoon, that evening. Uh, I did my tryout, you know, which consisted of um, 500 squats, 500 uh, sit-ups, 500 uh, leg lifts, 200 push-ups. I had to run a mile and a half in 14 minutes, and then I was supposed to fight for 15 minutes, and uh, that's what I did. But I was actually kind of putting it on Vernon, so I actually fought for almost 30 minutes. So who was in the who was in there that day? It was uh, Ken, Frank, Vernon White? Who was there that? Okay, so Frank was actually in Japan training. So it was uh, Ken, Jason DeLucia, Vernon. Uh, who else would you guys know? Um, I don't know if you guys would know everybody else. So, I mean, those are the kind of the guys that you would know that that that, that actually fight. But the, the other guys, there were some other guys that competed in Pancrase and stuff like that. But uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a big, uh, you know, it wasn't a big. Uh, well, after, after that day. Ken was like, wow, great. Now you're, you're part of the team. Like that was the tryout. It was you passed. Yeah. 
I, I think Tim was a little surprised that I knew what I was doing, you know, because again, like everybody think, you know, like, sure. you know, as everybody does martial arts, everyone's a badass and, you know, and hey, question like, for you. It's sl- slightly off topic, but we'll get right back to the topic. Yeah. But just as far as the timeline goes and you know, there's one moment in UFC one, one moment in UFC one between Hoist and uh, Ken. That always was a little odd to me. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not implying or saying or even asking if it was not real. It just it just was odd to see. I just wonder what your impression is. There was a point when Ken was fighting Hoist when he Ken kind of sat back for a leg attack, and Hoist just kind of Hoist just came up with him, and you know of course avoided his leg being locked, and he ended up winning. But it just seems so odd to me because a like I mean I know. Hoist knows about footlocks and but it's not like his expertise. B, Ken is really good at them at that point. C, Ken wasn't wearing a gi, so it's not like Hoist could grab his collar and sit up. Like it just seemed like a point where I was like, well, you know, I think this guy's I think Ken is gonna finish the fight now. Any any thoughts on that moment or just in the mo- you know, or, or just in the moment of the fight, anything could happen? Yeah, well, you know, actually uh you know and even Ken will admit this, you know, <laughs> you got like he underestimated voice. You know what I mean? I mean, Ken literally said, I'm going to sit down and crush this guy. He's, he's a 180 pound dude. I, you know, man, I, you know, I, I, I throw javelins bigger than him. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, and to be honest, you know, he sat back in a very sloppy position, you know what I mean? You know, and he gave up, but, you know, I think he just thought like, cause I don't know if you saw the, the heel hook that he did on Pat Smith. I did. Was, I did. It, yeah, that was not the most technical heel hook you ever saw. Right. You know what I mean? It was a bad position, you know, but a heel hook's a heel hook still, right? You know what I mean? And Pat Smith knew nothing about, you know, grappling at all, not really, you know. And so, you know, so I think Ken just, you know, Ken underestimated, uh, you know, Hoist's back, you know, knowledge in this. And I think he underestimated, because Hoist actually is a pretty strong guy for his size. You know, he's, you know, he, he looks... You know, he looks like a scarecrow, but he's strong, you know what I mean? And uh, he's physically a strong guy. And I think that probably took Ken, you know, back a little bit. He wasn't expecting to be that strong. And uh, and, and he didn't do the most, tech, you know, he didn't sit back in the most technical way like he should have. And just because he didn't think he was going to have to need it, you know. And, and I think it was a mistake that uh, cost him the fight. Okay. Um, you know, again, slightly off topic, but another good off topic, you know, along with the story you told me about, you know, your big brother, which we already went over. Another thing you told me once that always has stuck in my head was your mindset at the time about potentially you fighting Hoist. Obviously, it never happened. Yeah. But, you know, you know, with your wrestling and your striking or whatever, and just, you know, your level of confidence in beating him, if you did both fight when you were both in your primes, could you talk a little bit about if you matched up with Hoist around those days, what your strategy was? Because you told me that I found it very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, yeah, I, I studied with, uh, you know, like the judo guys I, I studied with were, were not like the judo guys are today. I mean, they, uh, you, get, you know, people look up a man named Vince Tamura. He he was uh, uh, a well. He passed away. He, he was a judo legend. He he represented the United States in the very first jiu-jitsu championship. I mean, judo championships. Uh, you know, his his brother was a famous uh, uh, judo player. Um, and um, you know, so I understood. Like I was watching, so I understood. You know how to avoid uh, 
arm bars, how to avoid position, you know. And and one thing you do, one thing good about college style wrestling or folk style wrestling is it's about control. Now it's a little less that way with freestyle and Greco-Roman because all you have to do is tilt the guy and you only have a few seconds to, to try to maneuver the guy anyway. So a uh, tilt position or a pinning position and freestyle and you stand back up versus folk style wrestling where you actually in college, you get riding points. You know, if I ride the guy for a while, I get points for, you know, controlling him. And so, you know, my game plan was, you know, pretty simple was the fact that I saw him shoot takedowns. I, I realized he's probably not going to be able to take me down. All right. He's going to try to pull guard. And I'm just going to play like I did, like when I was in judo, was, you know, I was real good at playing the defensive game and just uh, work my way back up and just, you know, try to knock him out. You know, um, you know, cause I, you know, I, I, you know, I have knockout power. I mean, you know, out of 125 wins as a pro, 88 people got to get knocked out. So I, I have a high percentage of knockouts. And so that's kind of really what I was, was planning. You know, I mean, I was, you know, planning a game, uh, that was, um, uh, you know, probably, you know, when I think about how I fought Sakuraba, uh, would have been just, I would have been probably a little more aggressive because Sakuraba, you actually had to look out for because he actually could take you down. And Sakuraba actually was not a great striker, but he hit hard. <laughs> and so you actually had to look out for his strides. Right. And you had he had those, he had those kind of wide punches, but they definitely worked sometimes for him. So, oh, yeah, actually, yeah. I mean, you know, if you watch some of his fights, he'll, he'll connect with the guy. And you can see that the guy's probably a little bit hurt, but then he takes him down. And, and, and you know, and, and he's amazing, you know, especially with the uh, Kamaras and Hammerlocks, things like that. You know, he's, you know, he, he you know, yeah, that, was, you know, that was, was my nightmare for that fight. Huh? I was going to late. Well, before I get to Sakuraba, which I was going to get to later, but since you brought him up, I'll get to him in a moment. Just one thing, rewinding just a bit, when you talked about your judo training and you were aware of staying out of arm bars and stuff, just out of curiosity, were you aware of how to stay out of or possibly escape from the beginnings of a triangle or you figure that out? Yeah. Later? Oh, you knew that. Okay. Just from judo. Yeah. 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 I mean, triangle still is a, is a big judo, you know, okay. originally so you, judo knew, you knew if you're, if their legs were around you in a certain way, you, you knew not to extend that arm too much. You, you were hip to that. You already. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything was about being like this, the short arms, like, you know, when you're, when you're in guard, you know, you know, you, you, you want to have raptor arms, you know, you want short arms and stuff like that. Keep everything, you know, down, keep, you know, be able to, you know, be able to, you know, lock their hips down and push, you know, down and you can't do that extending. Right. You know what I mean? And so, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, and like, you know, I always tell people the best way to break the guard, everyone always has a tricky way of breaking the guard. And, and uh, I was asked one time, what is your favorite way to break the guard? And one of the seminars I was, you know, attending, I was like, well, it's real technical. What it is, I take my left hand, I grab the belt or, 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 or stomach area, I push in, and I take my right hand, and I punch you in the face. And I said, it's amazing how that guard opens up when I do that. And, uh, and that's really what kind of what would have been my game plan. Well, like, like, like Carlson Gracie, Carlson Gracie said, um, a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt, when you punch him in the face once, becomes a brown belt. When you punch him in the face twice, becomes a purple belt. When you punch him in the face three times, <laughs> becomes a blue belt. So that's, uh, that's that. Now let's just go to Sakuraba. And before I ask you the question, I just want to say to the audience, because obviously people who watch this have varying degrees of knowledge of MMA, but I think one of Guy's most impressive fights was Sakuraba because you have to understand he didn't he didn't fight Sakuraba when he was out of his prime. Guy fought Sakuraba in Pride when Sakuraba was in his prime in a time that he beat 
Hoist, Henzo, Hyen, um, and someone else I'm forgetting, you know, another member of the Gracie family who was very good. So he was tearing through people, hurting people, uh, kimoring, you know, using the Kimura lock on anyone and everyone, uh, you know, fighting the best guys in the world and doing really well. In fact, when he, when he, if I'm remembering my, my events properly, when he lost in the Pride Grand Prix and Mark Coleman won, I think he lost to Igor. I mean, give me a break. He just had a freaking hour and three quarters fight with Hoist and then he had to fight Igor, you know, whatever. So Hoist, I mean, excuse me. So Sakuraba was an incredibly dangerous, amazing fighter who was pretty good at stand up, pretty good at kicking, good wrestler, pretty tricky with his submissions. It wasn't like he had a lot of holes in his game. And uh, that fight was amazing uh, how well you did. So with, with that as an introduction, do you want to talk a little bit about the Sakuraba fight? Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, everyone always wants to ask me about it, you know, so, it, it, you know, it's probably been talked to death. But, you know, the thing the thing that I, I, I find that uh, one, one of the more interesting uh, aspects was, uh, you know, like I said, I, I took that fight on, on two weeks notice, you know, and believe it or not, I actually had the flu. And it's so funny because they said they gave the uh, the match. They they were like, oh, the reason we gave it a draw was because you outweighed him by 20 kilos because they listed me. At, they listed me at like 93 kilos. But I, I, I had been sick. I actually literally had the flu. I, I literally the day I left, I took four IV bags of fluid. Then I got on a plane and I was so dehydrated from being sick, you know, from, from not doing well. I didn't pee one time on four bags, four liters of that. that that's a lot. And you know, as a doctor, I should have been like peeing like a racehorse. And that's how dehydrated. So, but for some reason, I, when I, when, when I got to Japan, I felt good. I mean, I really did. I, I felt good. I felt strong. Um, and, um, you know, and so, you know, my, you know, you know, basically, you know, my game plan with Sakuraba was, you know, I, I thought I matched up with him good enough on his wrestling, but I, you know, he was sneaky enough. And so I was, so Mark uh, Kerr and Mark Coleman were training, uh, to, you know, we're rolling together. And, um, and we were, we were, we walked in uh, as they were finishing up and I just said, Hey guys, I go, Sakuraba shoots that, you know, Sakuraba shoots was, what's called a Russian single or, you know, outside single. He does that a lot. I said, I know I'm not going to catch him in a guillotine. Cause the last thing I really want to do is try to guillotine him and pull him on top of me. You know what I mean? You know, I said, that's not as I said, you know, I'm thinking, you know, what would you guys do? And they literally, you know, were like, ah, you know, we, you know, grab this. And so one of them was grabbing his, his, uh, his, okay. So if you, if you grab my, if he was grabbing my right leg, um, I would reach over top and grab his right leg, his, his, his ankle and pull it up towards his butt. Right. And, uh, it, which is similar to, to a move that you do, but it was, it was something that they, that they did different that I'd never seen before. And, um, I used it in, in the match. That's one of the reasons why Sakuraba could not take me down. And it was so funny because after the match, they come right up, they give me a, they, both of me, big hugs. They're like going, you use the mat, you use the move. I was like, yeah, of course I did. <laughs> I mean, it worked. And, uh, so it was kind of cool. That was kind of a cool thing. Uh, those guys helped me, helped me win that fight. Um, and, uh, you know, but like I said, fighting him was, you know, I, you know, the, the key was staying moving. You know, the, the problem with most people is they, they try to, they try to, 
they try to lock him down. Like if he takes you down, he, he, you know, they try to, you know, you try to get him in the guard. Not a good thing to do to him, right? Uh, you know, if you don't. So the, the way you the way you fight a guy like Sakuraba is you got to match movement with movement. You know, and that's what I did. I you know, if you watch the, the match when we did go to the ground, I was moving constantly. You know that's what I mean? When you mentioned about the guard, um, listen. Hoist Gracie probably has a better guard than most people in MMA and yeah. fighting a pride at the time. And he tried to use his guard against Sakuraba and it didn't work out in any way, shape or form. So that, that was exactly. A good exactly. And anybody who tries to like, you know, not move, you know, you got to stay moving on him. You know what I mean? And, 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 and that's really kind of the key because that's how he gets his stuff. He, when, when he does stuff, he moves and his movement sets up his submissions. And so, you know, if you watch how he does it, he's very little, very, very rarely is it like this slow prodding type attack with him. It's, it's, it's usually a series of attacks and movements till he gets you a better, a good position on you. And then, then, then he usually slows it down because he's, you know, he's also chimpanzee strong and did, he'll get, did you feel, you felt his strength was, yeah. Quite high. Yeah, you, 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 where you find out about it is when he starts grabbing hold of your wrist. Yeah, he he does not he does not come off as a strong athlete. He, you know he doesn't use you know it's not like he uses power shots and and things like that. But he is crazy strong. All right, like when he grabbed hold of my wrist, you know because he, you know because he wasn't giving much resistance on some of the stuff. So I was, I was, I was, I was you know kind of. Felt like I could push him around, but then once he, you know, once we started rolling a little bit, and I he grabbed hold of my wrist, I was like, oh, I was like, holy shit, he's 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 a little stronger than I was expecting, and that, you know, so there was an adjustment I had to make, you know, and that's often that's really why I didn't stay on the ground at all with him at, at all possibilities. I realized exactly how physically strong he was, and I was like, yeah, you know, and I didn't really know how my wind was going to be because I didn't get to train very much for that fight. And so I was like, I better keep it to where I where I know I can control the the energy. Got it. And then, you know, going from like UFC to Pancrase to Pride, you know, et cetera, et cetera. When did you and listen, I'm sure even when you were doing judo way back in the day, you were familiar with footlocks at some on some level. But yeah. certainly, certainly in Pancrase, you became a leg attack expert on defending them and executing them. When you were learning that, did you think like, man, these are these are playing a bigger role than I ever thought they did. In Japan, these guys just love the freaking leg attacks. Was that kind of a surprise to you? Well, well I, I don't know if the term surprise would be the right word, but fear would be a better word <laughs> because, uh, you know, I knew that I would be able to get out of the, you know, triangle. I knew I'd be able to get out of the arm bar, but man, I was unfamiliar with the leg locks, right? Yeah, I'd seen leg locks done. Like they, they, they have leg locks in judo, you know, uh, they're, they're, you know, the traditional, Ankle locks in judo um, aren't nearly as good as the ones that they do today, right? But they're, you know, I'm familiar with them. But, you know, but it, it, it you know, it scared me, you know what I mean? And, and one of the criticisms I got in Pancrase was I wouldn't wrestle, stay on the ground very long with these guys. That was because, you know, I was, you know, when you wear that shin pad and the, and the shoe, that's like, a handle that says here, break my ankle. It's funny. I was, I wrote that on the pad. As you were talking, I was my next, my next question. My next question was going to be wearing those boots in Pancrase. How much 
more difficult did it make it to escape leg attacks? But you obviously started talking about it. Made it, it made it, it, to be honest, it made it next to impossible. You know, and that's why, I mean, you know, I've got a, I got a broken leg from Fanaki from, from getting out of leg lock and couldn't, you know, I couldn't kick out, couldn't get out of it. You know, when you, uh, when you, you fought Funaki two or three times, three times. Okay. Um, when you saw him again, just kind of going on a side subject, when you saw him fight Hickson, I mean, I don't think either of them were on their primes. I think Hickson was past his prime. I think Funaki was past his prime. But when you watch Funaki, who you fought three times, fight Hickson, who you never fought, but you're familiar with him. What were your, you know, thoughts? What were your impressions? What were your expectations? Were you surprised? Did it kind of go down like pretty much how you thought? Like, you know, how did you? What were your thoughts on the Hickson Funaki fight? You know, I'll be honest, man. I only seen it one time, you know, and I and I, you know, I, I don't even really sure about the validity of it. So it's like, you know, I'm not, you know, uh, you know, I, I kind of watching it, and I'm like. Now I got, I, I, you know, in order for me to really have a, a fair statement, and I, I probably have to sit down and watch it a couple of times, but I kind of watched. I was like, yeah, that's bullshit. And, uh, which it may or may not. I mean, I, I'm not, and I, 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 and, I, and I always held judgment on that because, you know, people would always say shit like that. And you're like, you know, what the fuck you're talking about? Now I kind of know what I'm talking about because I don't know. 60 right, something right. MMA fights. I might know about a little bit about it. But, and as, and as but, you know, guy, as you know, that when there is a fight that's not legit, sometimes both fighters know, and, and sometimes only one fighter knows. So I don't yeah. know. I don't know what Hickson. I mean, I have no idea. I, I have no clue. Well, who knew what. Yeah, I, and and so I don't know. I mean, you know, I just thought, you know, it was, uh, you know, I mean, you know, Fanaki, uh, you know, Fanaki is by far one of the best guys I ever fought. You know, and I fought really great jujitsu guys, and they haven't been able to do anything to me. Oh, you know, I mean, be honest, I mean, be able to Especially do it. On that note, guy, you know, you actually bring up a topic that I wanted to uh, bring up. And it's interesting because I think, and you correct me if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out a scenario. You correct me if I'm wrong. If you fought Ricardo Arona or Noguera in Abu Dhabi rules, you might lose. I'm not saying you would lose, but you could lose. But the fact that, you know, you fought them both in MMA, and even though they might have, known more submissions or been, you know, knew more jujitsu. When you fought them in, in, in MMA, the whole story changed and you did phenomenal against both of them. So I, I just wanted to kind of ask you um, when you were fighting guys who were, you know, because Ricardo Arona, if I'm not mistaken, in like 99, he like won the Abu Dhabi heavyweight. Chain. He was like the best Nogi grappler in the world. Yeah. But um, that didn't totally matter when the, when the, rule set was pride rules like how did you kind of think about fights like that well i mean you know the game plan was to uh you know was to uh you know re really game plan comes down when you fight guys like those guys is to to rough them up and then when they try to take you down you know you know when you start stopping their takedowns you know, they start panicking because they're like, what am I going to do? You know, and, because, because Ricardo Arona doesn't want to stand up with you, like just yeah. indefinitely, obviously. Speaking, yeah. of, speaking of Arona, just a quick question on a side note before you continue about that fight. You mentioned Sakuraba looks way stronger to me, feels way stronger than he looks. Ricardo Arona, I don't know what kind of shit he was taking, but he looked uh, inhuman, his physique. Yeah. Was he weaker 
than he looked, or he was that strong because he looked really strong. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was strong. I mean, he wasn't stronger than me, but he was strong. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we we matched up probably strength. You know, about the same. You know, uh, I know he looked a lot more muscular than me, but uh, you know, uh, I've always, always. I always kind of like had chimpanzee strength. I never looked that strong, but I've always been a very strong athlete. When you when when a guy like uh, Arona or Noguera, you know, win a split decision, which is kind of a suspect decision for several yeah. reasons, did yeah. they ever kind of come up to you after and be like, "Hey, man, I just want to say, like, you know, you won," or "Hey, you did great," or "Hey, I can't control what the judges do, but thanks for fighting me," or did anyone say stuff like that? Uh, no, uh, but Noguera was always uh, a good guy, though. He was always like, you know. Um, you know, that was a really great fight. He goes, he goes, that was, uh, one of my toughest fights ever and blah, 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 like that. And, um, um, but Arana, you know, not so much. I mean, but we didn't really talk. I don't think. Plus, I don't even know. I don't even know if he speaks English, quite frankly. I mean, yeah, yeah. I I, I don't think, you know, I mean, I, I think he, you know, I I didn't have any problems with him as a, as a person, you know what I mean? By, by and large, you know, most most of the guys were were pretty decent guys. There were only a handful of guys that, uh, that, I was like, you know, man, just avoid it because if I was going to be around him, I'd probably take a shot at him. So, right. was like, so speaking speaking of that kind of stuff, um, kind of, you know, going back and forth with different organizations, different timelines. But when you fought Tito the first time, I think you won the guillotine, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. When you, because he, he, he looked strong again. I, we were, you know, I don't know how strong he was. I guess you'll, you'll tell but Tito's us. strong. Yeah, he looked, he looked very strong yeah. to me. Um, he's a, a decent puncher not not the greatest boxer i don't think he's a great kicker in any way some you know decent submissions but a pretty solid wrestler what was it like for you strategy wise and just feeling feeling it to be in there with him um well you know you know it's the well, okay. Well, I, the first fight, I, I underestimated him a little bit. I, I, I wasn't expecting him to be quite as scrappy, and, and uh, but um, you know, he, uh, you know, I still, you know, th- th- that fight, I had a broken hand, so because uh, I heard it on Christoph Leninger's head, and uh, so that, so that fight um, was, you know, forced me to use my brain a little bit more. You know, I had to be thinking a little bit more. And the second fight, um, you know, it just wasn't, I, I didn't prep for it, right? You know, I mean, I, I don't make excuses. You know, I'd, I'd been sick. And and so if I step in the ring, I don't make excuses about it. Like, you know, you know, fair and square. It's just, like I, like I said, is like I was promised because I was going to cancel that fight because I got, because I got the flu. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they paid me more money. But they also said, they also guaranteed me a rubber match if I lost. Which they never did until, well, really, it wasn't even a rubber match because, you know, it was just, you know, it was a new, you know, it was a new organization and everything else. I mean, you know, when, when Dana White came about, right? But the original Center for Inter- Entertainment Group, they, they promised me a rubber match, you know, and uh, if, if, if I took the fight and, and lost, and they never gave it to me. Hey, question, so, guy, just, uh, just switching gears a bit, but I, I was thinking about it when you were talking about the Tito fight. You had a really good lead left roundhouse kick to the head. Yeah. You, know, you were fighting left or front. You would lead that's my, that's my trademark. That was a great, great thing. You had really good ground game. So when you're on the ground, either grappling or striking on the ground, that was really good. You also had good, just straight boxing. 
Um, I didn't see you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I didn't see you attack the body that much, meaning I didn't see you throw like a ton of left hooks to the liver or right straight to the solar plexus or in the clinch, knee the solar plexus or liver a lot. I'm sure you did here and there, but is that just something that you, 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 you were so good at boxing, you know, going for those punches to the face, so good at takedowns. You just had so many things you were doing that that was lower on your list of, of attacks, like body well, shots. Yeah. So how, how I like using body shots are, uh, I, I, I generally like, if you watch like my kickboxing fights and stuff like that, you'll see where I do my body attack. And what it generally comes into is I'll, I'll wave in on my opponent, you know, with uh, my strikes, my, my kicks, my punches, you know, and then I'll get within a close range where, you know, I'm like nose to nose with the guy. And that's when I usually do most of my damage, especially to the body. And you just didn't get that opportunity the same in, in, in uh, MMA, you know, just because, you know, once you got that close, uh, you know, the, you know, it became a grappling match, you know, usually, you know what I mean? And so it was a little harder, it was a little harder to do that. And, you know, um, you know, I, like when I did knock a couple guys out with body shots in MMA, it was cause I used it as a lead punch. Like I would, you know, I'd fake the, uh, I'd fake the jab and then just throw a horrendous left hook into the bodies. I'm, you know, lean into it, you know, and, and I caught a couple of guys doing that and, and knocked them out. But, uh, but, but, but my style was much more like getting in close, you know, once I was in close, then, you know, start working, you know, you know, keep, keep, keep them worried about here and then boom to the body, boom to the body. The thing is that um, really the only body shot KOs people see too much in MMA is a, a left hook to the liver at times. And yeah. B is a kind of a, a right spinning back kick, which kind of ends up on the right side of their body, which ends up on their liver, whether they even know they're targeting, targeting the liver or not. I don't know. And then sometimes in the clinch, you'll see a knee hit the solar plexus. But anyway, that's that. Um, kind of wrapping up, I just wanted to ask you about nutrition for two reasons. Well, one is even if you never ended up getting a naturopathic degree, which you did after your career, even if you didn't do that, just being a fighter you were kind of thinking about nutrition because even before you had the knowledge that you have now, you know, you, you had, you had a rough idea of foods that made you feel better or didn't make you feel better or whatever. And of course, after your career, you did get a degree, um, a doctorate as a naturopath. So um, if you, if you'd like to just chat a little bit about nutrition for athletes and nutrition for the general population, just some things that you've gleaned over the years that could be helpful. I think that'd be great. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So what I, a couple of things that I would tell you that would be uh, helpful to a lot of people uh, is, uh, which is uh, nothing new, but a lot of people is, is the intermittent fasting. Uh, that uh, fasting itself over, you know, for thousands and thousands of years have been used in practices, uh, as you know, because your your practice is a naturopathic type practice too, is and nutrition's a big part of it. Um, just the way that we eat foods, when we eat them, and the type of when and the foods that we eat when we eat uh, have a significant effect on 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 the chemistry in our bodies. And you know what I have found with the intermittent fasting for me at my age now. Now, an intermittent fast is not for an athlete. You know, it would be very difficult to. Um, to be able to do that as an athlete but um but for generally like for for the um for for an athlete like me today like if i was to compete in jiu-jitsu tournaments stuff like this intermittent fasting wouldn't be a problem 
And really, it's a great time, a, a great uh, uh, way of uh, eating because it literally allows you to uh, be able to. Because I, I'm still 205 pounds right now. Um, I intermittent fast anywhere from 16, usually 16 uh, hours. Uh, uh, you know, if, if, if I want to be in a muscle kind of a muscle, if I want to get a little vein and want to put some more muscle on something like that, I'll do a, a 10, 10 hour, uh, 14 hour type deal. But generally, I keep a 16 to 8. Uh, and of course, uh, if I wanted to slim down, I would do, a, you know, a, a 6 and 18. But but uh, but I think it's an excellent way for people to, to get in, involved in, in getting control of their of their health. So, guys, uh, besides, besides intermittent fasting, um, you know, there's a lot of different ideas about carbohydrates. And let me let me explain what I mean that I'd love to have your expertise on it. You know, there's some people who, let's say, do the carnivore diet. So obviously they don't have carbs. There are yeah. some people who will say, well, you know, if you're a high level athlete, you're burning a ton of calories, you know, have your protein, have your fruits and vegetables, but it's OK to have some carbs. And, you know, some people are just like afraid of carbs or something like, you know, or, or some people even say um, either don't have breakfast or at least have a protein breakfast. Like, don't you know, don't be having like toast and like cereal for breakfast, either just don't eat breakfast or have like eggs for example what are yeah. your thoughts on carbs because there's a lot of confusion about it in the world okay well okay so the, the, the problem the, the, the mistake that people make with carbs is that okay so carnivores people realize people eat the carnivore diet your body's utilization protein utilization on let, let's say you just ate red, red meat okay you just ate red meat all right so if you're eating steak what people don't realize the amino acid absorption on the on that thing is literally only about thirty eight percent. So what there's what, what so what happens to the other sixty two percent? Well, it goes either strictly to waste or, in fact, with most meats, it actually turns into glycogen in your liver. All right, so you are actually it's going to convert into, you know. You know, carbohydrates convert into glycogen, they convert into glucose, stuff like that. So you can do that with meat. So, so what people don't realize is that you're still doing that, and, and it's the quality of the, your proteins, which is super important. And it's also the same thing as like because uh, you know, prime example is eggs. Eggs are a great protein source. Why? Because to be honest, like sixty percent of it, or sixty-eight percent of it, uh, whole eggs goes to. Uh, 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 amino uh, acid utilization. So there's less waste and there's less sugar. So if you really were going to be on a carnivore diet, that's that would be where you want to be. But nobody really is. You know what I mean? They just eat meat, but they're still going to do it. So the, the problem that I have with that is that, um, you know, especially for the athlete. Well, okay, here, here's the difference. If you are, if you are, Okay, it's like you've heard of the multiple meal deals, right? So that's a big deal. Eat multiple meals. An athlete should eat multiple meals, yeah, you know. But what they have to do is, is that there's that that's like grazing, right? That's how I, I when, when you eat five, six meals, seven meals a day, you're, it's like grazing. Okay, there's two kinds of animals that come to mind when I think of grazing. One of them is a cow, and the other one's a horse. What's the difference? Well, one we eat, and the other one's an athlete. So if you're an athlete, having the multiple meals and stuff is important. Having carbohydrates is important for an athlete because that actually causes that insulin reaction to push those nutrients into your cells for recovery and strength and all that kind of stuff. 
So that's super important, you know, and so, but, but the, the quality, the, the problem that we have today is the quality of the carbohydrates that we have today is really the problem. Okay. How about this? How about this? That's, that, that's very helpful. I'm sure to a lot of people. How about coffee? The reason I ask about coffee, because a, some people think coffee is actually quite good for you and they'll explain why it's good for you. Um, some people think coffee is not good for you. Some people don't really know. They just like how it tastes. So they have coffee every day. Some people, their body uh, is probably not quite healthy enough, so they don't have energy, so they kind of need coffee to function. What are your general thoughts on coffee? Well, I, well, I, I, I like coffee. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of it, but I'm also a big fan of uh, – uh, okay, here, here's the deal. The nice part about coffee and why coffee is better for you than just like a caffeine supplement is that there's a lot of polyphenols in coffee and there's a lot of good nutrients in coffee that, 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 that really are phenomenal for you and actually offset a lot of the stress that, that too much caffeine will cause your adrenals. So when I tell people, yeah, coffee is actually a better, better deal than, than, uh, than doing, um, you know, uh, a pre-workout. Like people do these pre-workout things and you look at them. And they'll have like a, anywhere from 200 to 400, you know, uh, mega, uh, grams of, uh, of, of caffeine. Way, way too much, way too much, right? You know, and they had nothing nutritional in those things that, that, that help offset that. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of coffee, but I, I also am a big fan of limiting it. Because, again, what you have to worry about is, is adrenal exhaustion. And you know that. I mean, you probably fix you know, have to deal with that more than anything when it comes to, to people outside of the actual, you know, adjustment issues with you. And, and it's, it's something that we deal with with our patients, you know, is, is that they, they, they get, you know, they don't realize all the crap that's out there that has sugar and has sugar in it and has caffeine in it. Those are two things that are the sneakiest stuff. They'll be like caffeine free, but it has guana. What, what, what is guana? Guana is caffeine. Exactly. Hey, <laughs> question. Um, if someone wants to work with you and have you help them with their health, their diet, et cetera, maybe their exercise program. Um, someone says, hey, you know, Guy Mesger, at one point, one of the best fighters on the planet, high-level pro athlete, ha- you know, very smart guy, has a degree, a naturopathic degree, um, and they want to actually work with you for their health, for nutrition, for exercise, et cetera. What's a website they can go to to start the process to find out if they can work well, with you? Our, our medical website is uh, is mesgersystems.com. And and listen, I you know like like a lot like like you like with you it really the best part of working with with, with a uh, with a healer such as you is people always go there when something's wrong. But really they would be much better off if they went to you when things are right in order to keep them right. So we don't have it, these big dramatic issues that, that go on. You're saying this, guy. You're you're saying that whether someone's sick or totally healthy or in between, they can go to mesgersystems.com and start working with you at whatever level of health they're at to make it higher. Exactly. If we get like we we, we only have three patients that are under three thirty five years old. Uh, two of them are 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 physical wrecks, and one of them came to me because he heard me talk about it. I said, listen, if I get guys coming to me at their 30s, they won't have to be on testosterone. They won't have to be on all this other stuff for much later in life. You know, they won't have the, the issues with their thyroid and all this other stuff because we will 
start working on 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 programs to to heighten that. And that's really still the truth. It's like you know, like the, the the biggest crime in my I see right now are these med men clinics where they're just pumping these guys through test with testosterone. Now I'm not saying that's not a, that the people don't need it, but most people don't need it as much as that is as, as they're prescribing. It's it's a standard, dude. It's 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 a standard. 200 milligrams of testosterone once a week. It's a testosterone sipinate. You come in, you get your shot. Really what they're doing is they're making you a slave. All right. Why? Because you come in. Yes. Your testosterone might be a little low. Boom. You get that. I'm feeling good. All right. Every week you go in and if your insurance covers it, you still pay 50 bucks each time you go. So you're still paying 250, 300 bucks a month, depending on your treat to, to get treated. And what they do is they just made a slave out of you. Cause the moment that you go on that testosterone, all right. Three weeks into testosterone, your system shuts down. So it's not making its own stuff anymore. All right. So if you have to go off the testosterone, boom, you crash and you're going to want to kill yourself because, you know, you, you know, you know, you're feeling like a million bucks because you're at 800, 900 uh, testosterone and then you're at 150, you know, and you're like, you know, it, it, it's criminal. I mean, seriously, it's criminal. You know, like I always tell people, you know, the, the way that we go about doing stuff is that our first line of 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 of, of therapy is is 100% natural pathic, right? And then depending on your age, you know, because some of our guys come in and they're in their 50s and they're doing stuff. So there's, you know, so really what it is is, you know, they're going to use allopathic style. Allopathic, for you guys don't know, is, is is medicine, medicine. So really, what it comes down to is, is that there's very few people that are ever going to be or, or should ever be full allopathic, but most guys do. Most guys just do the testosterone. Right. They don't check their nutrition. They don't check their inflammation levels. They don't check their you'd be surprised how they even check the estrogen levels, which is a byproduct of too much testosterone. <laughs> you know, anyways. So, you know, it, it drives me nuts. And really, you know, as, as we go, that, you know, I, I'm a fan of certain allopathic medicines, not many, but some of them. And I'm, 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 I'm actually a fan of testosterone, too, if it's done correctly. And that's the important part. The important part is that you get into a system, you get your doctor who knows, hey, your testosterone's a little bit low. Here is something that might raise it up without, you know, shutting your system down. But they don't do that. Why? There's not any money in that. You know, they, they can't charge your insurance company $250 for that shot. Well, listen, obviously, if you listen to the guy talk about health and healing, A, cares. He said that one thing drives him crazy. A, cares about you. B, he's an expert. So anyone who wants to uh, work with him for their health, We'll put the website up. We already said it. Yeah, please do, guys. I, you know, I, you know, I, I really got a great team of, uh, of of healers on me. You know, we have an amazing uh, medical director uh, who is, uh, you know, among other things, one of the leading uh, uh, neurolog- neurological specialists with plant-based medicines. You know, on top of being an, uh, you know, amazing, you know, medical doctor. Uh, we have a great therapist who's also a nutritionist who, uh, uh, you know, so, you know, so we, we have a great team, uh, our, our, uh, our, uh, nurse practitioner. She's an amazing nurse practitioner, super smart. We got an amazing team of, of health professionals and, and, and I would love to, you know, like I said, I, I would love to spread our gospel, uh, because it's not just about getting a shot. It's about, you know, developing community about, about developing, uh, you know, uh, try to develop a cure because again, most of the problem with most allopathic medicines is that they're really just band-aids and sometimes you need that. I'm not saying you don't, but really if, you, if all you're looking for is band-aids, you're always going to have a place to bleed. Let's figure out 
where you're bleeding, let's stop the bleeding first. And if you, if you only have to live with one Band-Aid for your whole life, that's great. You know what I mean? Because we can stop it up. You know, or maybe, you got, or maybe, or maybe zero band-aids once they start. Or zero band-aids. Better. And really, that's that's really where we, you know, that that is ideal. But most, of, you know, the sad the sad part is, is that I rarely get anybody who, who comes to me that's hundred percent healthy, right? You know, that's because they just don't come. They, they just don't come to you until there so something's broken. And when something's broken, that's a much more difficult thing to happen. I mean, you know what it's like, dude. I mean, if I had a broken back, there's not any adjustments that you're going to do to fix a broken back. It's broken, right? You know what I mean? And so it's the same thing. Come to me before you have that broken back. Let's figure out what's going wrong here. Let's make these adjustments so we're not having to worry about, you know, a broken back. Well, it sounds to me like as long as you're alive and breathing, you can contact Guy and he'll help you. So on I would like note, to, yes. On that note. Thank you for the interview. I've been friends with Guy since 2004. He's a great friend, great guy. And um, I'm super psyched we did this interview. You've been interviewed a lot, but this is one of your best. I could tell. Thank you. I appreciate I appreciate being part of the being part of your team. Cool. Always, guys. And, and and listen, to be honest, I I have uh I'm probably somewhat of a connoisseur of, of medical and health professions. And and one thing I will safely say, uh, you know, uh, you know, to the audience here, Dr. Pete is by far one of the most knowledgeable guys I know. All right. And his techniques are not what you're going to look like as your kind of classical uh, chiropractic, not even your classical chiropractic, let alone healing modalities. But he has a gift that is there, there are people who have there, there's a difference between the physician who is a doctor and a physician who's the doctor and a healer, because a healer knows how to really get down and fix fix things at the root issue and really do stuff. And they have this natural gift. That, that makes them good. You're one of those guys. And, and it's always been, you know, whenever, you know, you, you've always been uh, just an amazing uh, healer on top of being a physician. And uh, that, and believe me, I'm in the doctoring business and that is a rarity. And you know it and I know it. I, know? I appreciate that, especially coming from you. On that note, thank you again for coming and we'll, we'll see everyone soon. All right, guys. Have a good one. See you guys.